Okay, if you'll take your Bibles, please open them to the book of Romans in the 8th chapter once more. Join me in standing, if you would, please, out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> I think I have one more sermon in Romans after today before we head back to Hebrews. And we'll uh, finally get ready to make a run at Oral and Melchizedek. We've been waiting a while. Romans chapter 8, starting again at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we consider this passage, you would give us understanding, you give us clarity, you give us insight. Lord, let us see and taste and know and experience the power of hope. Let us know why you've given us the time of waiting and the joy and the strength and the glory that's ours because of hope that sustains us in it. God, let us walk in these days as kings, as, as men of God, as women of God. Let us understand, Lord, that you have called us out for greatness. Greatness as the world sees it, God. But greatness in significance greatness in impact, greatness in purpose. Let us bring glory to the risen Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. 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 If we hope for what we do not see, one thought, there are contained in that sentence two of the most powerful words in the world. The word if, and the word hope. In many ways, they're synonyms. Both words deal with the question of potential, but there is a nuanced difference. There is potential contained in the first word, and potential explained in the second. That potential is the power of the practice of hope. If says it might be possible, hope says it's certain. I see it. I understand its shape. I know its power. And when we see if applied to our practice, if you will only do this, then you move from the realm of empty dreams and into the realm of a very sure and certain promise. If you will only believe and act on what God has said, then the power to ignite transformation in your life is unlocked. And that power is the power of hope. 
So Paul begins this by telling us that hope empowers our waiting with eagerness. A determined and hungry heart says, I can't wait to get started. Let's get busy. Let's chase it down. Let's figure it out. It's the difference between somebody who's ready to embark on a new life with the person that they love versus the person who drags themselves out of bed on a Monday morning and says, something good might happen today, but I really die. Amen? But we're called to understand that this life is given to us by God to recognize, to engage in, to delight in the relationship that he's calling us to walk in. And what we fight against in our flesh and in the old man who still has power in us every day, all day, for the rest of our lives, what we fight against is that the old man does not desire God in any way. This is part of the reason why we must understand Scripture in light of God's sovereign power to call the dead to life. Because we don't want him. Our flesh hates him. And if you think that you want his God, you don't understand the majesty of what he's done in your life. If you think that you were the one who desired him enough to make him choose you, you've lost sight of just how wondrous it is that God chose you in the first place. And the power of hope gives us a perspective into hungering after that relationship. He sought us. He chose us. He drew us. He called us to himself. He did everything needful for us to be involved and engaged in a relationship with him. And hope says God has transformed us so that not only can we have that relationship, but now we want it. And every day that we live, we want it just a little bit more. Every day that we walk in grace, we desire to see grace made plain in us. Every day that we walk in truth, we desire for truth to have its way in our lives. This is part of the reason why every single one who loves God strives after holiness. Now we strive imperfectly and we fail continually, but it is still the mark. So when somebody says to me, yes, I'm a Christian, but don't talk to me about how I'm living my life. Don't talk to me about holiness. Don't talk to me about what God requires of me. That's none of your business. And frankly, I have my papers. I'm saved and I'm safe. Leave me alone. What that person has just told me is they are not saved. They have nothing to do with Christ. They have nothing to do with his glory. They have nothing to do with the power of transformation in our lives. Because the thing that is transformed at its core, the thing that is transformed first, is what it is that we want. We want something different. We want God. And prior to His glorious transformation of our souls, we didn't. We didn't desire Him at all. We were actively opposed to Him. The Scripture tells us we were at war with Him. The Scripture tells us that we only desired to be free of Him. Now, hope leaves us here in the middle. It elevates our desire. It elevates our hunger. It elevates our passion for God. And it recognizes where we are. It recognizes the gap. And it says, the gap is here and the gap must have a meaning for God has made it. 
Hope looks beyond this moment and looks into what God has promised. And it does so in a way that empowers us. It doesn't leave us languishing. It doesn't leave us wallowing in self-pity, destroyed by doubt, and, and overcome by the burden of the sin that we're not sure we're ever going to be free from. Because, beloved, understand this. What God promises is that one day you will be free. He promises that one day hope will have its way and His glory will be revealed and you will be made perfect in His righteousness. Amen. That's a promise that God gives to every one of us. Now it's going to take a while. In fact, you won't accomplish that until God accomplishes it the second after He brings you home. <laughs> but it's always the target and it's always the goal and we understand, because hope is real, that that is out there and that it is as certain to us as if we held it in our hands already. So the flavor of hope is not a flavor of despondency. It's not a flavor of despair. It's not a flavor of a, of a longing that will never be satisfied. It's anticipatory. It's, it's a sure thing. It's a certain thing. It's, it's a glorious thing. It's a thing that lifts us. It's a thing that fills us with purpose and power in the moment that gets us through the failure of the day. Because we always know that tomorrow, and even the rest of today, can be better than it has been. We know this. We know this in our souls, and we know this because hope is real. If we hope, then this is the certain thing. What does Paul say? Verse 25. If we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Now, he doesn't say, if we dream emptily of what we hope or think or dream up or desire in some way might somehow by our imagination come to pass. He says, if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. This registers to us the simple fact that hope is contingent upon the promise of God securing it and making it real. It doesn't rest in us. Look, if your hope was in your ability to fulfill any of this, we'll just go home. Pack it up. Call it done. This is a waste of time. If your hope is in the government fixing it, go home quickly. <laughs> If your hope is in anybody being able to do anything for you who is not God, then that hope is groundless. Hope is rooted and anchored. It is birthed and strengthened from the source of the promise that it rests in. And the source of that promise is the person of God. It is the person of Christ. It is the absolute reality that God gives us His Word. Longing, then, is powered by this eagerness to see it fulfilled. It's driven. It's, it's, it's this winding up of, of what it is that makes us get out of bed, what it is that gives us the grace to face this day, and what it is that is encouraging us to press through when it doesn't work out. And it's crucial for us to understand this because it allows us to define the object of our desire with clarity. 
Look, if you're hoping that tomorrow is going to be better by some ambiguous sort of maybe I'll have a better day than I had today, it's not going to go well. If your hope is powered by the fact that maybe tomorrow somebody will be nicer to you or something will come into your life or some circumstance will be altered or whatever it is it might be, if those things are what drive your hope, then that's not really hope. That's just a pipe dream. It might happen. It might not happen. It's not anything certain and it's not anything to rest yourself upon. Your hope has to be something more steadfast. Your hope has to be anchored in something which is more certain and more real. We do not, as Christians, desire ultimately a place, a reward, a thing, or a circumstance. Yes, heaven is our ultimate home, but that is not our desire. Being reunited with friends and family is a joy that we can anticipate, but that is not our great desire. The rewards which will be given to us as faithful servants of the Most High God are a certain thing, but that is also not our desire. Our desire is for the person of Christ to be manifested in us and manifested to us. <clears throat> our desire is for Jesus. There is our hope. There it is, lying in front of us, plainly and simply, throughout all of Scripture, that Christ is our hope. 1 Timothy 1.1 says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. Look, let me say this plainly. The hope of heaven must be understood as the presence of God, the presence of Christ. Amen. The hope of heaven is not the endless day of fishing. It's not reuniting with family. It's not the loved ones who've gone before. Yes, they'll be there. I'm not saying they won't be. And yes, you'll know them. I'm not saying you won't. And you'll have time to visit with them in some way. I don't know what that looks like. But the hope of heaven is the person of God dwelling among us, being with us so manifestly that the scripture says we will know him even as we are known. That we will see him unfiltered. We will know him completely and we will not have any barrier between us and him. Right now, if God were to open wide the heavens and step into this place, every last one of us would be ultimately consumed and destroyed by the presence of his glory. You could not endure his presence. It would be an awesome way to go. <laughs> but go you would. <clears throat> when Isaiah saw him in the temple just in a vision, he was literally coming apart at the seams. He said, oh, I'm undone. I'm a man of, of wicked lips, and I dwell among a people of evil speech, and, and I'm, I'm undone. I'm coming apart at the seams. If he understood atomic structure, he would have said, my electrons, they're flying away. That the idea that we can be where God is without being destroyed by His glory. Do you remember Moses on the mountain? He asked, let me see you. And God said, no, you don't know what you're asking for. I'll, I'll give you just the briefest glimpse of my departing glory. So like a flash bulb that went off in the old days when they used to have the, the flashes that, that were destroyed in the pop, you know? It's like that flash bulb that went off and Moses caught just the slightest glimpse of its fading light. 
And on the strength of that minute exposure, he glowed for 40 days and 40 nights. So much so that the Israelites said, cover yourself, dude, you're frightening to look at. On the barest glimpse of the receding, passing, vanishing glory of God. And even then, Moses was hidden in the cleft of the rock and covered by the hand of God to protect him from even that. We, we, we are told in Scripture that we will be where he is, unfiltered, and prepared for that glory. That's a hope worth having. That is so much more than any of the trivial things that we have attached the hope of heaven to. And I don't mean that to sound terrible. There are those in this room who have lost loved ones so dear to them I cannot comprehend the pain and the suffering. But still, let me assure you on the authority of God's word that the unfiltered presence of God is better than that reunion will ever be. Amen. And for us to not recognize that is idolatry. For us to long for anything other than God is idolatrous at its core. This is the battle that we have been fighting for all of humanity. This is the battle that we have been fighting for all of our lives. It is the battle for the supremacy of God in our heart's affection. What is it that we long for? What is it that we hunger for? What is it that we desire above everything else? Because if heaven is the hope of the presence of Jesus Christ, then he receives more glory from our longing than he does from any other thing. He has loved us with an everlasting love. He has given us an eternal love that chose us from before the foundation of the world. And he has given himself to redeem us so that he might have us as his own personal inheritance. According to scripture, he chose us before the foundation of the world so that we might redeem, be redeemed before him in love and presented back unto God a purchased possession, holy and blameless and a part of Christ's gift unto God. Beloved, you have so much more to look forward to than anything you can imagine. This is what Paul had in mind when he said that God was able to give us far more exceedingly abundantly than we could ever ask or imagine. It's this idea that what God holds in store for us surpasses everything you could ever have dreamt. Try as you might, you will never be able to make too much of God. Try as you might, you will never be able to magnify His love so much that God will say, now back up from there. Try as you might, you will never be able to express the majesty of who He is in a way that exceeds its reality. Even when you get there. Even when you're gazing upon him, unfiltered, redeemed, perfected in every way, you will still have all of eternity to understand more and more of his majesty, more and more of his glory, more and more of his worth, more and more of his praises, 
And we will sing those praises until the end of eternity, which has no end. And they will never grow old and they will never grow tired, for we will always be seeking to give Him the glory that He deserves. Just think on that for a moment. This is the hope of heaven. It is so much more than we can ever understand or conceive of. And He has given us all of these things because they are His to give. This is His personal inheritance. You understand that? We've been made, according to Paul in both Romans and Galatians, heirs with Christ, co-heirs with Christ. We've been adopted in as sons and daughters of the Most High, adopted in as children of God, brothers and sisters unto Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, you know, they came late to the party. I'm going to give them the fullness of my own inheritance. It's his inheritance that we're enjoying. And it goes further than that. Because he's also giving to us not only his inheritance by birthright, but his earned reward by his obedience. The fullness of God's pleasure for everything that Christ did while he was upon the earth. Because your righteousness is filthy rags, and therefore his righteousness has been imputed unto you. His actual obedience has been counted to your credit. I think that's worth praising. Amen. I think that's worth hoping in. If he has done all of this thus far, why in the world would we not hope in Him completing what He promised? It just makes no sense. He calls us to dwell richly in this hope. In anything that we allow to cloud our vision of the power of this hope. It's idolatry. It is something that degrades us, not something that elevates us. And everything that we do and everything that we are should elevate us closer and closer to knowing Him. Closer and closer to the fullness of His glory. This means that hope has a component which is completely dependent upon focus, and the transformation that hope and that focus bring. What you hope in matters. Amen? What you hope in makes a difference. His promises then drive our desire for transformation. 2 Corinthians 7.1 says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So the promises that God gives us become then our motivation for the pursuit of holiness. Now this is a stronger motive than we often give credit for. Many times if we pause to consider why we do this or don't do that, if we're honest with ourselves, what it comes down to is I don't want to get caught. I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want pain. 
I saw a, a meme that said, so what you're telling me is you give away 30% of your income so you don't go to jail. And I gotta tell him that's the truth. <laughs> that's a really poor motive if we're talking about the things of God. If your motive for obedience is to avoid hell, it's not obedience that comes from the heart. If your motive for obedience is to avoid pain and suffering in this life because you're smart enough to know that doing that will cause difficulty, it is not obedience from the heart. Our obedience must be based upon the promises of God that he has made us his own. Our obedience must be driven by love for him and by a desire to be pleasing in his sight. Our obedience must be driven by the fact that the more we see of Jesus, the more beautiful he becomes to us and the more we long to be like unto him. That's why Paul wrote what he did in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 17. He says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Now we're going to pick that idea up next week and talk about the glorious liberty that's been promised to us. But where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. I'm going to read verse 18 again. We all with unveiled face, in other words, the veil that Moses put on, that's the picture Paul was drawing from, the veil that Moses put on has been removed. We are permitted to behold the glory of God. We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. What we're seeing is what we are becoming. We are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. In other words, we become that which we gaze longingly upon. What you desire shapes what you are. What you hunger for shapes what you become. And so the more we hunger and thirst after Christ, the more we hunger and thirst after His righteousness, the more we desire Him, the more we begin to look like Him. And the clearer our vision of Him, the truer becomes our transformation. Look at 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, it says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it does not know Him. So the more we look like Him, the less the world understands who we are. Now, if you have experienced sanctification in your life to where you have begun to look like Christ and think like Christ even at all, you will recognize the truth that there are relationships in your life and people in your life that you used to count as friends who are separated from you by the righteousness that is being formed in you. That is just the reality. The world cannot know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. 
But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Here's that picture again of the unfiltered image of Christ doing the work of transformation. Even now, as we have unveiled faces and are beholding upon him the glory of God and are being transformed into that same image, there is still the, the cloud of the humanity that remains in us, that clouds our vision, that keeps us from seeing him clearly. The more we gaze upon his face in the glory of Scripture, the more we gaze upon his face in the glory of all that he does and all that he is and all that he has created, the clearer that vision becomes. But we will still not be able to see him perfectly clearly until we are there. It has not yet been revealed what we will become. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. Perfectly aligned to his glory, for we shall see him as he is. Verse 3 says, Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Beloved, hear this. You cannot be like the world and like him. You cannot successfully live with one foot in both places. It will kill you. It will destroy your testimony. And it will rob you of your joy. It will cause this life to be so much less than it could be. So much less than it should be. You have to recognize the simple truth that God has called you into a different life made for something that you didn't know before he called you, transformed to delight and enjoy in that which you would have hated before he changed you, and being made like unto that which would destroy you if he gave it to you now. And all of this, we bottle up in this one little tiny word, hope. But when we have this hope, when we begin to at least have a flavor of it, the impact in our lives is that it, it makes us want righteousness. It makes us want to be like Him. It makes us want to put on Christ more today than we wore yesterday and more tomorrow than we can manage today. It makes us desire Him. And it makes us desire His glory so fully and so profoundly that we abandon the things that we used to do. We abandon the things that we used to love. We abandon the things that used to delight us because all of a sudden they just don't have the same punch that they used to. Amen. God calls us to live lives that are more. We are not yet what we will be. And the final transformation will occur when He appears. But this life... This life is the furnace of that transformation. God is burning away the dross. He's burning away that which hinders us. He's burning away that which does not need to be in us. And in that transformation, in that fire, glory is revealed. It's a wondrous thing. Now I want you to notice with me the last statement. He who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Now, 
I want to say this plainly. You're never going to fully accomplish becoming perfected this side of glory. And you're not able to purify yourself at all apart from the sovereign mercy and divine power of God who is doing the work in you. Amen. Okay? And yet, when this hope is birthed in you, your desire becomes such that you willingly and passionately seek to be made more like unto Christ, and God begins to work with you through the process of sanctification to strip away that which dishonors and build in that which glorifies, and it's going to feel from our perspective like you're working your salvation, which is why Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You're not the motive force. You're not the source of the desire. You don't have the ability to do what you're commanded to do. But God in His mercy gives it to you. And experientially it feels like you're doing it. He who has this hope purifies himself. This is an absolute certainty. The man who absolutely has no mark of Christ in him does not belong to Christ. Period. Now, all of us walk a different road and all of us are being transformed at a different rate and all of us are called to different things. So it's never a good idea to compare what somebody else is doing with what you're doing. Either to look down upon them or to lose all hope for the transformation that's being done in your life. The only fair standard is you and Christ and the Word of God and the Spirit of God in you. This is the fundamental and dynamic difference between condemnation, which, he, which Romans tells us we have no part of, and conviction, which is the work of the Holy Spirit. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? Well, what that means is that the Spirit of God is very precise in what He calls you to repent of and to change. Condemnation sounds like this. You're icky. God hates you. In one form or another, condemnation is this vague wash of filth and gook and slime from the past and slime from the present and potential slime from the future. And it's this wash of ugh. And it always is accompanied by this idea that not only are you unworthy of anything, which is true theologically speaking, but God is unwilling to give you anything, which is an absolute lie. And God hates you and God wants nothing to do with you. And He's only doing what He's doing because He's been forced to by some contractual agreement that you somehow maneuvered Him into. That's condemnation. And that has no part in the life of a child of God. But conviction... That's a different matter. Conviction is the work of the Holy Spirit. Conviction is the Holy Spirit saying that thing at that time was sin. Repent. It's very specific. And you know it when the Spirit speaks. The words are barely out of your mouth and you're going, oh, I shouldn't have said that. I'm so sorry. <laughs> the thought is still rumbling around in your head and you know immediately, oh God, forgive me. I'm so sorry. Conviction 
is that which causes us to turn away from our sin and to repent and to turn unto God. This ongoing work, it is the work of the Spirit in us which allows us to purify ourselves by His grace, for His glory, through His strength, for His purposes. You have nothing to do with it. And yet you do it. <laughs> Think on that too much and your head will explode. <clears throat> Hope then is the catalyst of our purification. You want to see a catalyst in action? Maybe you've done this, maybe you haven't. It's kind of cool. You can't burn a sugar cube. Do you know that? Sugar doesn't burn. If you take a sugar cube and you put it in ash and light a match to it, it will burn vigorously. The ash becomes a catalyst which allows the sugar to burn. Hope is the catalyst that allows Christ to transform your life. I use the word allow. It's not that he needs your permission or needs anything else, but it's how he has designed it to function. Grant me a little liberty with the English language. It's a little weak. <laughs> but we need to recognize the truth that God has given us hope because hope gives us this extra thing that turns us towards Him. Just think about it with me for just a minute. Just imagine that hope is gone. That you have no hope of ever being any better than you are right now. And you fail like you failed this morning. I don't know how you failed this morning, but I know you did. And you look in the mirror and you recognize the simple fact. This is as good as I'm ever going to be. Is there any meaning to that life? Is there any joy in that life? Is there any promise of anything better than this? And in the end, is there any desire other than just ending it all? This is why Canada is killing people. <clears throat> because it's a nation that cast God out. Ultimately, completely cast God out. And they know nothing of the meaning of hope. So for them, to say that I'm depressed and I don't see any meaning in my life, then the obvious answer is, well, then let's just help you kill yourself. Which is what's going on in Canada right now. Beloved, this matters to us because it's what's coming here. If we don't stand for truth and stand for hope and stand for righteousness and stand for what God calls us to be and understand the reality of what this really is, then when it comes here in force, we will not be able to stand against it in the day because the hour of standing is now. Amen. We have to speak truth into the darkness. And we have to speak truth based in hope, which says that Christ is sufficient for all of our needs. And Christ is sufficient for everything that comes to us. And Christ is sufficient to strengthen us. And Christ is sufficient to sustain us. And Christ is sufficient to perfect us. 
And Christ is sufficient to bring us unto himself that we might know the glory of his presence unfiltered and unharnessed and unhassled by sin. Christ is sufficient. And no matter what you hear or what you see in this life, you need to know beyond knowing that the power of hope says Christ is sufficient. Amen. He is enough. He is more than enough. He is everything that God has ever promised. Remember what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1.20. All of the promises of God are yes in Him. And amen. To the glory of God through us. That's the most remarkable ending to the statement. It would have been enough for him just to say that all of the promises of God in him are yes and amen to the glory of God. That's enough. Praise God. But he didn't stop there. He went on to say to the glory of God through us. I'm absolutely overcome by the mercy of God to call me into a relationship which allows this worthless life to have some significance, to have some impact, to have some meaning beyond anything I can give it. This is the catalyst of our hope. This is the power of hope. Hope comforts us when we see our failure. 2 Thessalonians 2. Excuse me. 2 Thessalonians 2, beginning at verse 16, says, Now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and word. We need to have that tattooed on the back of our eyeballs. Because you're going to fail. You're going to fail miserably. Some of you are going to fail spectacularly. (laughs) You're going to fail. And without the power of hope in your life, that failure has the potential to silence you. It has the potential to freeze you in your place. To prevent you from speaking when you should. But when you recognize that God gives us hope even in the midst of our failure, that he gives us comfort even in the midst of our inability to do what he tells us to do. When we begin to recognize that he has provided even for our inadequacies, Suddenly there exists for us a power that transcends anything we can do to break it. Do you honestly believe for one minute that your sin is stronger than the cross of Christ? Do you honestly believe for one second, for even one heartbeat, that you could do anything so black that it would be more powerful than the blood of Jesus shed for the forgiveness of sin? Of course not. This is our consolation. 
This is our hope. It is the truth that God has done all that he has done. And that these moments, for whatever reason, are ordained and designed by a sovereign God to produce the glory that he expects to produce in us. To produce the glory that he expects to produce through us. See, hope is driven by knowledge. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. We'll start reading at verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to the life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. Now that's twice he mentioned knowledge. But then he says in verse 4, by which... We have been given, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. You, you remember what I said is the foundation of our hope? It's the promise of God. It's the certainty that God will absolutely do what he said he would do. So what Peter's telling us is that by the knowledge of what God has said, and by the knowledge of what God has done, and by the knowledge of who God is, he has imparted to us the power of these promises. He has imparted them to us so that they actually do what they're supposed to do. That through these, that's the promises, you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So hope is the foundation of your righteousness. It is the foundation of your usefulness in the, in the work of the kingdom, it is the foundation of God in the midst of everything else that he's giving you, but it's also preparatory. How many of you know the worth of a good bag? Isabel knows. <laughs> you need anything, go see her. She's got it in that chasm that she carries around her shoulders. It's awesome. How much stuff can you hold in your hands? Not as much as you need. But you got a good bag? You can put stuff in it. It's the potential. It's the preparation. It's the potentiality of what I might need later. Now, this can get you in trouble, which means my backpack usually weighs about 30 pounds more than it should. But, I'm a strong man. I'll pack my own weight. Hike your own night, you pack your own freight. That's how it works. Hope becomes for us It's the, it's the catalyst of our transformation, but it's also the bag of our potential. Because you never quite know what you're going to need. And you never quite know how you're going to get it. And you never quite know what God's going to use to provide it. But the hope says, it's in there. It, it's, like that, it's like that carpet bag that Mary Poppins carried that you know, she can bend her whole body into and pull out the lamp. I want one of those. That'd be cool. I don't care if it is ugly. I still want one. I carry it. In the end, 
we recognize that God has given to us not only the promise, but the potential for the promise to expand to be everything that it needs to be. Back to Peter. Verse 5. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness. He forgot his bag. <laughs> and he has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And all of that is rooted, anchored, formed, the foundation settles in the hope that is promised to us in Christ. It is anchored in why God has constructed the world in the way that he has constructed it. Hope allows us to hold on to what we have acquired while still leaving room for more. It enlarges to include everything that's possible and grace and truth and hope are therefore inseparable. Look at Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Starting at verse 3. It says, we give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we've heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you, as it has also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit, as it also is among you, since the day you heard and knew the grace of God. From the minute that we heard it, from the minute that it was made alive in our hearts, because you heard it with your ears probably a hundred times before God made your heart alive so that your heart could hear it. You maybe heard it a thousand times. I don't know. But I know that every single one of us heard it with our ears many times before we ever heard it with a living heart. Because you didn't have a living heart. But in the moment that God made your heart alive and you heard the truth with your heart, with your soul, with that living thing that he just put in you, it began in that moment to bear fruit. And it continues to bear fruit. Because that's what it does. It bears what it is. And hope yields hope. And life yields life. And truth yields truth. And God uses all of this wondrous, spectacular, mysterious, unending thing to create glory for himself. And his purpose and his plan all along has been that his questions, his promises, his challenges, his things that he's put in front of us that we call difficulties, they're all 
centered on the person of Christ. They're answered in Him. The promises of God include the working of His glory in us. I'm back to 2 Corinthians 1.20. They include that God always intended to display the wisdom of what He's done in us. It's why Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21, Now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness. The coming of Christ was to demonstrate the righteousness of God. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. To demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Ephesians 3, 8 and following reminds us that God is demonstrating even now to the powers and the principalities in the heavenly places the perfection of his plan, which has been laid in, in down before the foundations of eternity. That unerring, unchanging, unending plan to produce glory in us. Which is why all of the promises of God in Christ are yes and amen to the glory of God through us. It's the most remarkable thing. It just blows my mind to consider it. And he's done all of this. And wrapped it all up in a bow with four little letters. And it's not love, but hope. It's love too, but hope. This reality that God calls us to walk in this day, knowing that there is purpose even in the darkness. I don't understand it all. I'm permitted this, this glimpse. Less than Moses had. But I'll tell you the truth, my mind is ablaze with it. I can't unsee it. I, I look at the glory that God has given to us. And I'm astounded that He chose to let us participate in His plan. And if the price of that participation is a little misery, a little sorrow, a little difficulty, hard days and disappointments. That's such a minuscule price to pay. No matter how large that pain might be. Which is why Paul says, the beginning of Romans 8, where we have been reading for the last six weeks, I'm convinced that the sufferings of this world are not to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. It doesn't matter what we face. Christ is better. It doesn't matter what's in front of us. It doesn't matter what pain comes. It doesn't matter what victory comes. Christ is better. 
He is sufficient. He is majestic. He is glorious. And in the end, hope creates a desire for us to imitate Him. It is the catalyst. It is the bag. It is the power. It is the promise. But at its core, all the way down in the, the, the belly of the beast is this truth. When you hope in Him, you just want to be like Him because He's just so stinking cool. <laughs> he's just so beautiful. He's so wondrous. He's so glorious. All I want is to be like Him. And it kills me every day when I get up and recognize how far I am from that. But it's still all I want. Again, John, 1 John chapter 2. I'll read this in a moment. Now by this, we know that we love Him. We know that we know Him. Excuse me. If we keep His commandments. He who says... I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. And by this we know that we're in him. He who says that he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he wants. We have this purpose, we have this promise, we have this power. We have this truth that God calls us to lay hold of, that empowers us to walk towards righteousness. We're going to pick this thought up right here next week. We're going to talk about the glorious liberty that's promised to us in Christ, which is delivered to us by the power of hope and by the power of the cross. Because in the end, What's in front of us in the culture, what's in front of us in the world, is going to require more of us than we have ever shown before. Amen. It's going to require some change. It's going to require some transformation. But the good news is, is that what God requires, He has already provided. Father, we ask that you give to us grace. Pray, Lord, that you would make us mindful of the fact that perspective changes. Lord, if we live with our eyes fixed only on the darkness that's around us, the perspective that that gives us will destroy us. But by shifting our attention to behold the glory revealed. By understanding that the light shines truest and brightest against the backdrop of darkness. By understanding that there's nothing going on that you have not prepared for our glory. Lord, that empowers our hope. It strengthens us. And it changes us. God, I pray that every last one of us within this day be filled with the power the power of Christ. And that we would leave this place and face the coming year steadfastly becoming like him the one that has saved us. God forgive us for the countless ways that we have failed even today. 
and transform us by your grace and your glory. That Christ might receive the maximum amount of glory possible. We ask all of this in his name for his glory. That the Lamb who was slain will receive the full reward of his suffering. In Jesus' name.